What's it like to work in the White House as a presidential speechwriter, at the age of 24, no less? That's what we asked David Litt, who did just that when he entered the White House in 2011, serving as one of President Obama's speechwriters until 2016. Described as the comic muse for the president, David also led the White House Correspondents' Dinner presentations and had a hand in adding humor to many of Obama's speeches. In a live discussion in Chicago, David talked about what it was like working with Obama, why a president's words matter, and how he managed the enormity of crafting jokes for the leader of the free world. A lot of my favorite speeches that I got to work on were at moments when people were beginning to lose faith and to help people remember, oh yeah, here's why I believed in this person in the first place. And, you know, leaving that room, yeah, maybe I believe again. Please enjoy our conversation with David Litt, moderated by University of Chicago Senior Associate Dean Jeremy Edwards. So let's dive into it. I'll start with the serious stuff first. Tell me everything about Michelle. <laughs> um, well, uh, well, first of all, thank you all for coming. I'm sort of still at the point where if I do one of these things and there's people here who aren't related to me, I'm very surprised. So I appreciate that. And I also really appreciate how high they've sat us above you all. So I feel like this is the definition of a thought leader is someone who's, who's positioned physically higher than everybody else and then can talk to them. Um, so about Michelle, you know, the funny thing actually is, and not to start off by disappointing everybody in this room, but we had a relatively bright line between the president's speechwriters and the first lady's speechwriters. So um, we, would, we would do, you know, so I would work with the first lady's speechwriters who are, are great. Um, and some of her speeches, I think particularly like her 2012 and 2016 convention speeches are just some of the best political speeches I've ever seen. Every so often we would get to do videos where they would team up, you know, usually around the holidays or something like that. The president and first lady would do a video together and that was always something you tried to angle your way into for the taping because they had this kind of fun banter thing going on where you were like, oh my gosh, you know, in addition to being the president and first lady and you have this model relationship that I get to watch. Um, but, and then I did, I did one speech for the first lady and I just remember it was really, it was so different than the president's team because for the first lady's speeches, you know, we went in and everybody was just like, there was just this incredible enthusiasm, it was just, it was so much fun. Um, and, and it was, it was a serious speech, it was about immigration and it was about, you know, so what it means to be American and the speech was, it had a, a funny moment or two, but it was a serious thing. But there was just this, uh, the attitude was like, it definitely had this moment of like, oh man, how do I spend more time in the East Wing? This is great. So uh, David started uh, interning at The Onion. And nothing wrong with The Onion, incredible piece of literature. Um, but you found yourself entering the White House at the wise old age of 24. And so you've gone from interning at The Onion to the White House. I don't want to speak for everybody, but I will. You've got some explaining to do on that. Like, how did that happen? Walk us through it. So, um, yeah, I, I started off thinking I was going to be in comedy. I, when I was 15, I guess, I started doing stand-up. I grew up in New York City, and I would go to amateur nights. And one of the nice things about being 15 is that in so many different ways, you don't realize when you're acting like a weirdo. And so I would be the strange 15-year-old at amateur night at Stand Up New York um, on the Upper West Side. And then when I got to college, I started doing improv. And then I went and I interned for The Onion. 
And I was sure that's what I wanted to do. And then it turned out that I wasn't very good at it. And that's when I decided maybe this is actually not so great after all. And um, I think the, the way I put it in, uh, in the book is that sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the absence of talent and the presence of destiny. Um, like I, I just, that was the moment where I was like, you know, maybe I want to do something bigger than comedy. Um, and so I wasn't sure what that was, so I applied to join the CIA. Uh, is that serious? That's totally serious. So the part where like 21-year-old me is a little offended that you all laughed just now. Um, but I figured, you know, I, I had taken like two years of Chinese and I was majoring in history and I was the director of my improv group so I could probably catch Bin Laden. And the CIA called and I, I can't, I don't think they were going to offer me a Bin Laden catching job. I think it was going to be some desk job. But, um, but they said, well, you know, we want to get this interview started. Uh, but first, have you used any illegal substances in the last 12 months? And I thought about lying to the CIA, and then I thought maybe I shouldn't do that, which is probably, that was probably my first mistake. But I told them, you know, yeah, I smoked pot two months ago, and that was the end of that interview. So <laughs> my CIA career was so over. So then the president calls you up. So then the president called me up. That's it. It's like, I heard you ran into some trouble with the CIA. Um, well, and, and that was when I saw President Obama speak after the Iowa caucuses in 2008. And I, by, so I, I was watching that speech on a plane in one of those tiny TVs on like the seat back of a plane. And by the time that speech ended, I was just a different person. I mean, I was, I, I don't know, you know, I think everybody here was sort of roughly a young person in 2008. Maybe some of you had the same moment where just watching this person speak and you're like, okay, whatever that, that person is the real deal and I want to be part of it somehow. And, um, and that's how I ended up, I volunteered on the campaign. And then I moved to Ohio for a couple months and I worked in field organizing. And then I moved to DC with, uh, my plan was kind of like hope and change and that was it. And um, I, I was briefly the worst intern in Washington, which we can talk about. Uh, but when that disastrous internship ended, I got an internship at a firm called West Wing Writers, which is a private sector speech writing firm. And if anyone here is interested in speech writing, I definitely recommend their uh, internships. I mean, they're not in Chicago, but uh, they're in New York and, and DC. And they, um, you know, I kind of learned without meaning to how to write speeches. And then two years later, Valerie Jarrett, who was the president's senior advisor, was looking for a speechwriter. She hadn't found anybody. I was actually planning to move here to work on the reelect. And I had, I had, um, what was that? Uh, I had sublet my room. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they finally found me. Um, like you smoked pot two months ago, as of two thousand seven. Um, so I, uh, but so I was going to move here to work in the reelect. I sublet, I subletted my room. Um, I was all set to go, and then I, it was, I got put in touch with John Favreau, who was the president's chief speechwriter at the time. And he said, uh, you know, Valor's been looking for speechwriter. They haven't been able to find anyone. If you want, you could just stay here and work in the White House and write speeches for her. And I was like, yeah, okay, I could do that. And so I double-crossed the person I had sublet my room to. And I still went to my going away party that I had scheduled for myself. Um, and that's like, the, the book that I wrote is not really a life advice book, because it's mostly about bad choices that I made. 
but it is um, the one thing I will highly recommend is if you ever have the chance to have a going away party for yourself but not be going away, you should totally do it because that was a great party. Um, and then I, I stuck around after that. So let's talk a little bit about speech writing. I think that there's a lot of myths uh, that you could probably debunk about what it is and what it's not. But I think I'd like to put it in context. I mean, I think in the scheme of governance and democracy and politics, the role of the speechwriter is quite remarkable, right? In many ways, you're crafting the words that the, that the leader of the free world will ultimately say in some shape or form. And that the, those words, we believe anyway, can create dramatic impact all around the world, for better or worse, and I think that we've seen some recent examples. Um, when, when did the enormity of that responsibility hit you? How did it hit you? And how in the world did you manage it? Or did you just wing it? <laughs> um, you know, it's weird because I think working in the White House, you even, even in like a good White House, you, uh, <laughs> you can't constantly be thinking about how much responsibility you have and how weird it is that somebody has been like, oh, you're 24, like you still comb your hair with a fork regularly because you don't own a comb anymore. You know, you like lost your one comb, but you're you work in the White House, um, and if I you. Think I know someone that combs their hair with a comb in the White House. Well, <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> Omit that. <laughs> But um, so if you're all, if you're only thinking about that and how bizarre that is, then you can't do your job. But if you're never thinking about that, you also can't really do your job. So you're kind of trying to balance it. Um, and one of the things, you know, I, I I mean, I remember thinking about when I was writing for Valerie, and this was before writing for the president, who faces like orders of magnitude more scrutiny than everyone else. But that if you know you if I did my job really well writing for senior staff, no one would notice. But if I forgot the L in public investment, suddenly that was going to be national news. <laughs> and so, so the risks are very high, and the rewards are sometimes you know like you're just trying to not screw up. Um, and so, uh, and and one of the things I sort of found was that everyone kind of learns that to some extent the hard way. Like your hope is to make a mistake that has small enough consequences that you kind of that you don't get fired. Um, but you know when, when I, I started a, an incident with Kenya by accident, um, and that was probably when I fully realized like how careful I needed to be. Um, or they're, they're one of the first speeches I wrote for President Obama ended up on Fox News for a variety of not totally fair but not totally unsurprising reasons. And when I went back into the office and was like, oh man, I'm so sorry. I, th I thought that people were going to say, you know, how could you? And everybody didn't want me to do it again, but everyone had one of those stories where it was kind of like, you don't realize this until, you're, until you see it, until, you, until it happens to you. So you're, you're saying that every speechwriter is screwed up at some point? Uh, I, I don't want to speak for every one of my former colleagues, but no, I, I think almost, I don't think you can do a job at, that has that level of scrutiny attached to it and not make mistakes. It's like any other job except you have way more people noticing when you do small things that are wrong and they become big things very quickly. And having the ability to start a major piece of trouble does not mean you have the ability to resolve that once you do it, um, which I also found out the hard way. So, so there's something interesting. I was thinking about what your day-to-day -day would have been like. 
And one, one thought that comes to mind is, if, you're, if your job is to write for someone, um, the assumption I make is that you must also know them as well in order to write in their voice. Um, how did you learn to capture the president's voice? What was that process like? Was it just sitting around, hanging out, chilling? Um, was it through people that you learned about his likings and dislikes and so forth? Walk us through what that looked like. So, uh, you know, one thing I will say is, while I think everybody in the Obama White House, myself included, kind of imagined what it would be like to become like best buddies with the president, uh, I certainly did not. Um, a couple of people before we started were like, well, yeah, he's in Chicago today for jury duty. Did you see him? And I was like, no, he wasn't like, I'm here, I gotta do jury duty, I gotta call David, see how he's doing, <laughs> and then move on to you know, the rest of my life. Um, that did not happen. But, uh, but one of the things that actually is really, makes writing for a president easier, there's a lot of things that make it harder. One of the things that makes it easier is everything that person says is online and searchable. So when I was writing a speech on, let's say, education, I could then go to LexisNexis and say, all right, what's everything else President Obama has said about education? What are kind of the common six or seven paragraphs between all these speeches? So you don't need to guess as much, and you don't need to spend that time, even to the point where, thanks, I don't know what people did before the internet, but um, <laughs> they were probably happier. But, um, <laughs> but that, you know, for example, if you wanted to figure out does President Obama like yogurt? You could probably figure that out using transcripts, because he's probably talked about it before, rather than having to go into the Oval Office and say, you know, Mr. President, hold everything, yogurt. <laughs> um, and so that, uh, that made things easier. And also we, as a team, you know, I would write a speech, and the first person it would go to was the chief speechwriter. So that was John Favreau the first term and Cody Keenan in the second term. And usually that was someone who was spending more time personally with the president. So if that came to them and they said, you know, this just doesn't look like a POTUS speech, it would come back rewritten pretty heavily or with some, some notes attached and you would go back to it to save him the time, save President Obama the time of having to rewrite something. When you were drafting a speech alone with a laptop, what was your internal voice like? Was it his voice? <laughs> like, I feel like that would be a weird thing. Yeah, it wasn't like, I, I wasn't sitting around sort of doing my Obama impression, <laughs> yeah. um, hoping no one overheard me. Uh, I would say, to some extent, it, not so much the, the exact way he sounded, just the cadence a little bit. You learn little things. One of the things I point out in, in the book, because I felt like I did want to clear up how most speechwriting works, is that most of us do not have a voice. Mm. Like, President Obama had a voice, Martin Luther King had a voice, I'm going to guess almost all of us in this room don't have a voice, and that's totally fine. Um, what we generally have are thoughts, and what we need is someone to organize them, just to figure out how to get them in the right order and how to unify them under one idea rather than ten ideas. And so um, that's still most of what I was doing when I was writing a speech for President Obama. To some extent, you would, you could kind of go a little further. I mean, I was thinking about, um, I was with my, uh, my fiance, Jackie, and we were at a Chinese restaurant in New York a few weeks ago. And I was talking with her, and it was like, it was just this cool, uh, like a very cool restaurant, and they've created this chain where they're cooking really good, authentic Chinese food, but they've kind of franchised it, and you had people of all different races 
you know, in like different backgrounds, all cooking Chinese food, and it's really, you know, authentic. And I had this moment where I turned to her and I was like, you know, in a way, they're not just cooking Chinese food, they're cooking American food. And she was like, you can't say that. Like, like he, you could do that when you were writing speeches for the president, because it wouldn't sound stupid. But now that you're normal. Yeah, if you're a normal person, you, that's just, that's a really dumb thing to say. It's like, yeah, that's a fair point. Um, and so I do think there were moments like that, where you could kind of reach a little higher or think about the audience as the entire country that you couldn't do, you know, that, that sound dumb if I were to say them right now. Let's, let's talk a little bit about presidential speeches and the words of a president. So I think the way in which we perceive the words of a president today has shifted quite dramatically. A bit, yeah. Um, I, a bit, right? And there's a lot of questions I want to ask on this. So I'm just going to ask two. One, um, do the words of a president still matter? And that's a, kind of want you to go a little bit deep on that. And the second question as a follow-up is, if they do, is the Oval Office under more pressure today than ever to be more of a branding campaign than it is to drive a policy issue in one direction or the other. And if that's the case, what do we do about that? So the first question, do a president's words still matter? Um, and I think this is not just now in the Trump era where everything's different, but, um, but also in the Obama era and I think before that. I do think this idea that a president can give a speech and persuade a lot of people who really disagreed with that person to suddenly agree with that person, that's probably not, that certainly wasn't really happening when President Obama was giving speeches and it, I don't think it's gonna come back. Um, because I think we're just polarized in a way we weren't and people have opinions that are really fixed. So, you know, it, and also the other thing that generally happens now is that the president is sometimes the worst messenger for that message. So, for example, when we were talking about the Affordable Care Act, if President Obama said, you know, Obamacare is working, that is not something that's necessarily going to convince somebody who hates Obamacare. If, you know, I remember somebody who introduced him at one point, and this goes to how you deal with that. Some, once we had an introducer who was Republican who hated the Affordable Care Act until he got sick and was only able to get the health care he needed because of the Affordable Care Act. And when he says, hey, Obamacare is working, that I think actually does connect with people or has the potential to connect with people in a way that a president can't. Um, and that happens now. Uh, that is one sort of similarity in this political moment. I mean, the moment President Trump endorsed, you know, there was that thing where he like fed a bunch of fish poorly the other day, right? And like I found myself being like, I can't believe how he feeds fish. And then I was like, that does not matter. Like even I can recognize that this is not a big deal. Um, and so I think we're so polarized that the moment, you know, uh, the president endorses something, it immediately becomes an issue. Um, what I think speeches can do, the, the main thing that speeches can do still is rally people who originally agreed with the president but no longer do. So a lot of my favorite speeches that I got to work on were about, um, were at moments when people were beginning to lose faith and to help people remember, oh yeah, here's why I believed in this person in the first place. And you know, leaving that room, yeah, maybe I believe again. Um, that's something I think speeches can still do. I think speeches can set the tone for not just the president, but everybody sort of in that movement. So if the president starts to talk about something in a specific way, it's a signal to, I mean, we're seeing it happen with Trump right now and, and in the Republican Party, but it's also, you know, when, for example, when President Obama first endorsed same-sex marriage, 
Um, that was a big deal for a lot of reasons. But even if he hadn't won it would have, in 2012, it meant that every Democrat running for president from then on would have to talk about same-sex marriage at the very least in the way that President Obama did. Mm -hmm. So that's something that presidential speeches can do. And then finally, um, presidential speeches, I think a, a very underrated aspect of them is that they serve as these kind of internal communications documents for the government. So if the federal government was a company, you would have an internal comms team in addition to the external comms. And you would be trying to communicate within the organization. And you don't really have that um, in the government. What you do have are speeches where if the president says, you know, gives a big address on criminal justice reform, then people in the Department of Justice and people in, um, in the White House and you know, people in the advocacy community, they can all say, OK, what should I be working on today? Here's my list of priorities. So that, that's one thing presidential speeches can do. Um, and I think that's sort of a segue into the second thing you were asking, which is are presidential speeches and, and is the Oval Office more of a branding campaign than it used to be? I don't know that it's more than it used to be. I think it's always one of the things that um, people that we worked with who came to the White House from the private sector were always shocked by how important communications were in politics compared to for corporations. That communications can't be an afterthought. In governance, they have to be part of the, the they're just baked into the cake. Um, is that rain or are there giants or what? <laughs> what? Oh, okay, that's fine. I just oh okay. Um, that's that's the one thing I left out of the book. Actually, was like Tuesdays at the White House at the gym was Zumba night, <laughs> and it was so frustrating because I always would forget, and I'd always and it was like it was some guy from personnel management, some guy who had a full time White House job, but also was a Zumba instructor on the side, um, but. Uh, When's his book come out? I, I don't know. <laughs> that's going to be a good book. No, well, the other, that's, I feel like so much of having a White House job actually was, like some of it is, you know, how do we make America better? And then some of it was just like, how do I remember which days to not go to the gym at 630? Um, and both of those ended up being very important parts of my day-to-day -day life. But um, I, I think that the brand, to some extent, you want the branding to be a bigger deal in government because the whole point is that we together are buying into or not buying into um, an issue. I think the the danger is you need to make sure that, like, yes, presidents are always going to spin, mm -hmm. but how can you have something where spin is acknowledged, but like outright lies are not rewarded? And I think we're figuring that out. Yeah. It's interesting times when it comes to the mouthpiece of, of a president. Um, I think that I think we would all agree with that. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the culture of, of the White House, uh, organizationally speaking. So you're referred to as uh, the, the White House funny person or the comic muse of the president. I can imagine what that feels like. Um, but I think about what that means um, if the president were to call you, hey, look, you're my comic muse. That's my impression. <laughs> um, that, that suggests to me that there is an ingrained need for humor in the White House somewhere. And who's responsible for implementing that mindset? So I want to reference a conversation that I had with your former boss, Valerie Jarrett, recently, and David Axelrod, who is a former senior advisor to the president as well. They recently said, uh, we do serious work in the White House, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. Where does that mindset come from, and who, who shepherds that day in and day out? Well, I, I don't think there was like a, a sort of comic relief, you know, 
I mean, it's uh, not the evolution of a jester. Right, exactly. No, I mean, I, I guess there, yeah, that, that's true. We, you know, used, that used to be a feature for world leaders. But um, no, I, no strange hats or anything <laughs> like that. Um, I think when I used to do, when I described myself as like the token White House funny person, what I mostly meant was that I would run the joke writing process for the Correspondence Center. So I do like the fact that in the United States, we sort of assume that once a year the president is supposed to not necessarily be hilarious, although President Obama had really good comic timing and could pull it off, but even if the president doesn't, they're supposed to go make fun of themselves a little bit. Um, and supposed to acknowledge that they take their job seriously, but they don't take themselves as seriously as they take their job. Um, and I think if that mindset is there for the president, it filters through the organization. So. Uh, if, the, if you have a president who is capable of having that distinction of saying, this is really important work, but I'm just a person, then it flows through the whole organization. If you have a president who thinks that they are, you know, that they are the office, that also flows through the organization. And one of the things I noticed at the White House that I think is generally true in most organizations is that the character and the personality of an office just reflects the person running the office in almost eerie ways. And that was true within the White House specific offices, but I also think it was, you know, if you look at who Barack Obama is as a person, so much of that was reflected in his White House. Did the president ever write his own jokes? Um, so the president, he, it wasn't like he was up late at night <laughs> being like, okay, I got some good ones. Because uh, one of the things I really admire about him is that he was very disciplined about his own time. Like, I'm sure that he could have written jokes. I mean, he's good at it. But he had a clear sense of, like, this could be delegated to staff because it's not that important. And this needs, you know, what, can, what am I doing that nobody else is going to be able to deal with and they need the president for? And he would do that. Um, where he was more involved is you know, we would go into the Oval with, let's say, 30, usually 40 jokes at first, about a week before the Correspondence Center. And those were the, the best of the about 600 that we would get from all the people writing jokes. So I would write some, but we'd also have people all over the country pitching jokes. And he was very active in just saying, yep, this is pretty good. And like, now nah, this, I'm, I'm not really feeling this one. And then also he would be, he would say, Oh, this is pretty good, but like let, let's make that a little sharper. You know, that was that was a very common. He was often the one pushing us to be a little edgier with something, be a little sharper with something. So um, he was he would do a lot of that, and then also the night before the dinner, uh, or the night of the dinner rather, he would make edits during the day, and I would often get his handwritten edits at night, and I would edit enter them in to the computer before the speech. And one of the things that I remember noticing every year was just that he had a very clear sense that joke writing needs to, in certain ways, be more precise than other speech writing. That the placement of a comma or you know, using however instead of but, that can make a difference in whether it's not just is the joke really funny or not, but it can be the difference between living and dying for a joke. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose so. Uh, and, and so he, was, you know, he would be pretty careful about that. What's the, what's the piece of work um, that you're most proud of during your time in the White House? Please tell me it was a loose <laughs> um, So that's certainly one of them. Uh, I, I was, so there's kind of, there's two. Um, the more serious one that I'm the most proud of is I worked on a speech that the president delivered to the NAACP convention in 2015 about criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, that, in for just a variety, I think it's true with any job. You go in hoping that things will all work out, and 99 times out of 100, at least in some small way, they don't. And then sometimes they do, and you can't predict when, and, and that speech just seemed to come together. The same was true of, of Luther, the anger translator, which was definitely my uh, most proud moment from a humor side. Um, and for those of you who haven't seen it or don't know the character, so. Uh, Keegan-Michael Key from Key and Peele played uh, Luther, Obama's anger translator. So in the, in the, on his show on Comedy Central, Jordan Peele would do Obama very you know, straightforward. And then Keegan would basically just complain about all the bullshit everyone was putting him through. And President Obama uh, was a fan of Key and Peele and really liked the Luther, the anger translator character, <laughs> perhaps not surprisingly. And, um, and so we had always tried to figure out, like, can we get Luther the Anger Translator on stage with the president? And it was never the right year. And then in 2015, it all worked out. And what was fun about that, too, was just like how excited President Obama got about it. Like, in, when we went through it in the Oval Office, before Keegan you know, came and rehearsed it, like, President Obama didn't need to read Luther's lines, but he did it anyway. Like, he was, very, he was like, all right, this is going to be fun. And uh, you know he had, a, he had a bunch of edits in the Luther part, not just the you know like the stuff about the press or about you know. Um, but there's also one part at the very end where where um, the line was uh, you know the joke was that President Obama got so angry that Luther couldn't calm him down, and Luther says you know Mr. President you don't need an anger translator you need counseling, and and that was President Obama's like handwritten edit for that part. So he was having fun with that, and then in the rehearsal itself. He could not keep a straight face, and that was, uh, you know, what I write about is like to me the scary thing was not is this going to be funny, but just is he going to be able to just hang in there? And it's not like the most impressive Obama accomplishment that he didn't laugh, uh, but it's still pretty impressive. So I rewatched uh, that sketch last night, and that that did strike me that he was just stone cold the whole time. There's no way I could have done that. Well, if you watch this, this is the other thing that I just thought was kind of cool about watching this because, again, I do not know when he devised a strategy on this. Like he had a lot of other things to think about, but if you watch, he he's always got his head angled sort of at Keegan at Luther the anger translator, but his eyes at the last minute are like, like he always just moves them in his peripheral vision slightly to the side so that he's never making eye contact. And clearly at some point he was like, this is my plan. Like I'm gonna, you know, I have a system and it worked. So I, I, wanna, I wanna ask you a little bit about, um, maybe a little bit more serious, some, some advice for all of us. Um, what's, the, what's the one thing that every good and effective speech must have from your perspective? Um, I think every speech needs to have, uh, let, me, let me put it this way. When, when you watch a speech and it seems like the speaker doesn't know what they want to say, they usually don't. Mm. And every speech needs to have a sense of what's the point of this speech. Um, when I was at the White House, a lot of the time we would start a meeting with our policy teams and maybe a couple people from the comms team and so on. You know, we'd all get together and we'd start by saying, what should the president say? And it took me a while to realize those were almost never very productive meetings because we, would, we never answered the most important question, which is, what do we want the world to look like after the speech? Mm. Um, and you know, how do we want this to change someone's opinion or change their mind? Or what, what's the point? What are we doing with this? And generally speaking, if you 
have that one um, answer, the reason it's important to have is not so much because you need it there, but because you need to get rid of all the other stuff. And so many speeches are these kind of hodgepodges of ideas, often good ideas, but there's never one thing you can take away from it. So if you, once you have your one thing, then you need the discipline to get rid of all the other stuff. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.